Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. All right. Y'all can have a seat. Pastor, if I've not had the privilege of meeting you yet, I normally sound just a little bit better than this, but I've got some sinus stuff I'm dealing with today. I apologize, but God's given a word for us this morning, and I don't want anything to get in the way of that. I want to do my best to communicate uh, what's on his heart and on his mind here this morning. I'm not really sure why, but have you noticed that in Hollywood, what often will happen is that at the same time... Two movies will come out with a different title, but they're actually about kind of the same thing. For example, when I was in high school in the end of the 90s, there was a bunch of movies that came out at the same time all about natural disasters. Do you guys remember that happening? Like at the same time, you had Dante's Peak with Pierce Brosnan, and then Tommy Lee Jones came out with Volcano. Like at the same time, the same movie, the same kind of plot line, you know, the end of the world is coming, volcanoes are erupting, we have to survive. And then there was also Deep Impact. Remember Deep Impact with Jodie Foster? Simultaneously, you know the next movie that came out? Armageddon, that's right, with Ben Affleck and uh, uh, Bruce Willis at the same time. Same storyline. A huge asteroid's coming to town, you know, we gotta save everyone. There's this epic song. The song in Armageddon was so much better than anything that happened in Deep Impact. You know, I still sing that song with Steven Tyler. It's just wonderful. But the thing is this. The thing is that they were both so similar. They were so similar that you could be talking with someone about the movie, and they're talking about it, and you're hearing them, but you're actually thinking that they're talking about the other movie because they're so close. And yet Deep Impact and Armageddon are not the same movie. They're very, very different. You know, when we think about faith, when we think about Christianity, when we think even about big R religion, that can happen sometimes there too. And the truth is, in some ways, in some ways, all major religions feel like the same kind of movie. There's a higher power, there's a sacred book, there's usually some sacred people, uh, there's things that you have to believe about all of that. They all just kind of feel the same. But the truth is, when you look at them, They actually are very different. Across all major world religions, they kind of have this central idea, the central thing. And I just want to talk about what religion is. The framework that religion seeks to build is a framework, and I I found this as I was researching for this. It's beliefs concerning the cause, the nature, and the purpose of the universe. So it's how we understand the world around us, how it makes sense to us in general. So if there's a higher power, what we do in response to that, that's kind of one aspect of religion. So the idea of like, I'm Muslim, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Christian or whatever, they would think about those things. But it's even true for people who would say, well, I don't believe in anything. I don't, I don't have religion at all because there's still some sort of framework that they have to understand the cause, the purpose and the nature of the universe. That's one aspect of what religion is. But when you look at another aspect of religion that's equally as important, and what I want to focus on in this series that we're starting this morning called Losing Your Religion, is this idea that religion not only helps us make sense of the world, 
but it de determines this. It determines the things, the actions that I have to do in order to be good. The things that I have to do in order to be good, like with myself. Why is it every January 1st we have these commitments we make to ourselves and it's usually a matter of weeks before I've even disappointed myself because I jumped right back into that bag of Oreos or I didn't run or I gave that up. There's things that I say are good for myself. It, it's how I see myself as good and it's how I see myself good with other people. But there's also an aspect of this, like how I see myself good with God. And so it's these things that I do in terms of my obedience, in terms of my actions, in terms of my language, that, that I would know and that you would know that you're good. And we would make sure we do these things, right? Like I'm going to show up at church. I'm going to smile at someone at the checkout lane. I'm going to be kind to poor people. Like as long as I do those things, then I am good. Now, the, the problem is that there's a version of Christianity that can often look like religion that's just a system of behavior that we think makes us right with God. And it's actually, it's actually a really, really common thing. But I would submit to you that that version of Christianity is actually, is actually a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit Christianity. It might look the same. But when you look closely, when you really start to investigate it, you see that it's distinct and different. Now, I, I know that this might sound a little cliche, but this imposter form of Christianity is actually more about religion, how we get to God rather than relationship. It's more about not what God has done for me, but it's about what I do to get God. And so for many of us, for many of you, you're kind of like on this roller coaster of your faith based off of what you did or did not do right. Like your behavior over the holidays, you might feel like as a result of that, you're either good or you're bad. And depending on how much you read your Bible, how much you come to church, if you give, that will determine whether you are good or bad. And, and I fear, I fear that our relationship with God in those cases are actually not motivated by love, but they're motivated by fear. And the result of that is kind of a constant cycle of oppression or, or self-righteousness like overconfident that I've done everything right, I'm a good person. And so you go back and forth because you're not basing your faith on relationship, but you're basing it on religion. And, and I, here's what I know, here's what I know. The times in my life where I've been like that, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to try to keep that up. You just feel like a failure. And for some of you, Maybe that's why you left Christianity in the first place, or maybe why you're thinking about even Christianity. But what I want to say is that it's not, it's not the real Christianity. And I'm excited about starting this series because what we want to say is, will the real Christianity real? Please stand up. In the middle of in the middle of what we're going to study here, we want to understand what is Christianity and what is the gospel. And here's what I want to say to you: that we have to come to grips with is this. 
is that if we're going to find our faith, it's going to require that we lose our religion. If we're going to find our faith, it's going to require that we shift our focus about understanding what faith is really about. Now, hear this. Listen, you can have a ton of religious activity and not be a Christian at all. And you can have an unbelievable encyclopedic amount of knowledge about the Old Testament and the New Testament and Greek and Hebrew and the end times and how everything connects together. And whether you're Arminian or you're Calvinist, you can understand all of that. And not be a Christian at all. And you can still be living by religion. Many of us. I, I fear this because I hear it as I talk with people. We can be trapped by this thing called religion. Rather than really having a faith that is good. Now listen. This fundamental question that religion seeks to answer. How am I good? How am I good with myself? How can I have peace with myself? How can I have peace with other people? And ultimately, how can I have peace with God? It's answered in one of two ways. It's either through my effort or it's through God's effort. How is it that I'm on speaking terms with God? It's either going to come through my work or through God's work. Another way that we might say that this is, is it based on human achievement or divine accomplishment? Now, listen. You may or may not know this, but every major world religion outside of Christianity says that your based your your goodness with God, your connection with God is based off of your own effort. And so we would say things like this, like I've got the scale in my life and as long as I have more good than I have bad or as long as I'm better than them because look at how they vote, look at where they live, look at how they act. As long as I'm better than them, then I'm okay. Now, there's a problem with that fundamentally because we have to ask the question, how do you know when good is good enough? But people will spend their entire lives just saying, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be good. And all major religions outside of Christianity are built on your effort to connect and to pursue God. Now, listen, there's... There's a version that maybe you grew up with. There's a version of Christianity, and it's subtle, and it's in there. It looks a lot like the other movies. It doesn't say that outright that we're trying to get to God by our own effort, but here's often what we do. We would say that Jesus died for me, and Jesus saved me, but now that he's done all of that, I'm going to earn it back, and he'll be glad that I'm on his team because look at how I've got my life put together. And so we would say that Jesus saves us, but I'm going to perform for God to stay in his graces and his graces. Now listen, that version of Christianity is not Christianity at all. It's religion with a little Jesus sticker on it. It's a good behavior with some Jesus sprinkled on it. And for many of us, man, we're exhausted by that. And we would hear Jesus talk about, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And we would say, I don't have rest like that because we're making it about our attempts to get to God. So I just want to ask this question. When you wrestle at night, when you're dealing with the bottom falling out, when you're stuck in your own insecurities, ultimately, what's at the center of your goodness? Is it what you've done or is it what God has done? you. Now religion, religion does something that's so dangerous because what it does is it puts man and our efforts 
at the center of faith. It's about how we perform. But honestly, if, if I'm honest about that, there's something about that that appeals to me. Something about that that says, you know what, it appeals to my narcissism, my pride, my sense of self-control, my sense of I'm better than them. It appeals to me because I can say, look at what I've done and look at all this goodness in my life. It's because of what I've, what I've accomplished. But listen to me, if, if God is a debtor based off of us that do good and he owes us back, who's really God in that equation? It's us. We're controlling it. And listen, we cannot read the Bible and come to the conclusion that that's the way that it works. You can't read through Scripture and think that it's conclusion that faith is all about us. Now listen, this is, this is a hard thing to say, and I don't get pleasure out of this. But at the end of everything, faith is not about you. It's not about you. Even the way that we call it, it's not, Christ, it's not you-ianity. It's not Scottianity. It's all about Christ. Christianity and what Jesus has done on our behalf. For many of us, we're not living by faith. We're living by religion. And in order to find our faith, we have to lose our religion. And I'm excited to start this series. This is something that God has done deep work with my heart and my faith journey over the past 10, 20 years understanding this more deeply over and over again. And, and I just worry that, God, I, I don't want to mess this up. I want to be able to somehow communicate your heart and your mind as Paul speaks about the gospel and the book of Galatians. And that's where we're going to spend our time for the next six, seven weeks. And so if you'll grab one of those orange Bibles, listen, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have a physical copy, so just keep it. We'll love to buy more when we run out. It's awesome. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to page 795, Galatians chapter 1. Now, this is a little trick that I've learned to find where the book of Galatians is because there's a bunch of short little letters in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn. That's how I still remember it. Galatians is where we're going to be throughout this series, and I would ask that if you call Grace Fellowship Church home, that you would be about reading this book with us as we study it together, and maybe you don't even call this place home, but you would be willing to risk stepping into reading this powerful, powerful book. Now, as you're getting there, here's what I want to say. I want to say that Paul is writing to Christians in Galatia. It's not a particular town. It's like a state. It's like a region. It's a bunch of different churches in that time. Now, he is speaking to Christians, to people that should know better, people that have heard about Jesus, people that have made that decision to follow Jesus, people that are not ignorant about the gospel, and he's speaking to them and he's clarifying for them, this is what the gospel actually is. Now, this is significant because it's not simply non-Christians that need to hear about the gospel. It's not simply non-believers but it's Christians who need to be reminded that this is what the gospel is all about. See, for many of us, we would think, yeah, I got that. I heard that 10, 15, five years ago, five weeks ago. Now, I want to move on to bigger and better things. We'll think that the gospel is just like the diving board into Christianity. Tim Keller says it's not the diving board. It's the whole pool. It's not just the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's the A through Z of the Christian faith. And, 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 and we're supposed to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over again. And I want to show why that's true for us here this morning. 
So Paul, we're going to start in verse 6 in Galatians chapter 1. Paul normally starts these letters that he writes to other Christians, and this is normally what he says. I'm so thankful for you. In my prayers, I'm just so grateful for you. And he just gushes towards the Philippian church or the, the church in Thessalonica. And he just loves on them and like his heart just like comes out. For them. But listen to how he starts this. It's, it's quite different. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live and the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. Listen to his words. I am astonished, deserting. Why would Paul say this? Why would Paul say this? He's, it's because they had a wrong understanding of the gospel. They knew better. They had heard it. They had someone had explained it to them. But something happened, and Paul says, you've deserted it. And you are now following a counterfeit religion. He says, you've turned to a different gospel, verse 7, which is really no gospel at all. Well, why? What, what happened? He says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion, and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So what was happening? Well, at, at this point in time, as... Um, Jesus finishes his earthly ministry. You know, Jesus was Jewish. Newsflash, he was a Hebrew. He was a Jewish guy. And so the very first people that believed in the message of Jesus Christ being not just the Messiah, but being God the Son, the Savior of the world, the very first people who believed that were Jews. And the Jews had a very rich and dynamic culture full of special customs and holidays and languages. But they were following the laws of Moses, this Mosaic law. And so that would include things like what you could or could not eat. So you weren't allowed to eat, I think, shellfish. You weren't allowed to eat pork. You had to take certain days off on the week. You had these customs. You had these holidays. And, and guys, you had to be circumcised. That was just a part of what it meant to be a Hebrew. Now... When, when the church was getting started, it was this amazing thing because God's people were always the Hebrews. But God says to his, to his followers, to Peter and to Paul, hey, remember that my promise to redeem the world is not just for the Jews. It's actually for the whole world will be blessed through you, he said to Abraham. So it's not just the Jews that are part of this, but I'm going to include the Gentiles. Now, most of us, I'm guessing, most of us are probably Gentiles in the room. So God tells Peter, hey, Peter, the Gentiles, man, they get to take part in this. He tells Paul, Paul, I want you to be the special emissary to go and tell the Gentiles all about me. And I'm redeeming and renewing all of creation. No longer is there going to be this separate stuff happening. But this was actually a really challenging mental puzzle for the Jews because the Jews, for their whole lives, for hundreds and hundreds of years, they were taught be separate from, be holy, be other than the Gentiles who do things like... Uh, you know, they do these pagan rituals or they eat these things that they shouldn't eat. And now all of a sudden the Gentiles are open to the gospel. And so what was happening at this point in time where these Jewish Christians in Galatia were going to the Gentile believers, these new converts, and they were saying, hey, it's great that you're following Jesus and everything, but you actually need to be converted to Judaism first. 
That's this term Judaizers. These are people who would say you need to be a Hebrew before you can follow Christ. Now, guys, guess what that meant? That meant you'd have to get circumcised. Now, we ask a lot of our church members here. We don't ask that, okay? That's not something we require. But they were requiring that of the Gentile believers. And when Paul, Paul hears this, he's saying, you, you're messed up. What they were doing is they were saying, Jesus alone is not enough for your salvation. It's going to be Jesus plus. Jesus plus these Jewish customs. Jesus plus you have to be circumcised. Jesus plus you have to get your act together. You have to look like us. You need to enter into our culture to be Jewish, and then you can be good with God. And Paul, man, this ticked him off. That's why he says, I am astonished, because Paul had been a part of that Hebrew culture. He was such a part of this Hebrew culture. He was so zealous for God that he went and he, he would kill Christians and arrest them. And, it, and he just looks back at his life and says, I was saved from that. I, I, none of us are ever going to be able to get to God by following the rules of diet. Like, none of us can do it. Even the Pharisees have to, like, modify it to fit their own needs. And, and yet you're pulling people who should be free in Christ back into this system, this system of oppression. Why are you doing that? And it ticked him off. He says, I'm astonished that you're turning to a different gospel. He says, which is really, he, call, he calls it no gospel at all. No gospel at all. Why is it, why is it that Paul says that any change to the gospel means no gospel at all? And no matter how small it is, it turns the gospel into null and void. Because Paul says this, he says, you were called by the grace of Christ. God's riches at Christ's expense, that's what grace is. God called us, we didn't call him. This is originating from God, this isn't originating from you. God accepts us right away, despite our lack of merit. The book of Romans says that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Christ died for us and offers us. That's the order of the gospel. God accepts us, and then we follow him. Now listen, every other major world religion teaches it the other way, way around, that we need to give to God in order for him to accept us. We need to attain a certain level of enlightenment, and then we'll be good, and we can have access to him. So in verse 7, Paul says that any teaching which adds on to Christ alone, if you're adding on the Mosaic ceremonial law, that it perverts the gospel. Literally, literally the word means to reverse it. You're reversing the gospel. This is fascinating. This is fascinating. If you add anything to Christ as a requirement for acceptance to God, if you start saying, I know I, I, know I need to be saved by Christ, but there needs to be something else on top of that. He's saying you're reversing the order and you actually make the gospel, the good news, not good news at all. You make it null and void. Any revision reverses it. That's why he says another gospel is not really a gospel at all. It, it, it's, it's no gospel. To change it the littlest bit 
is to completely lose it altogether, and it's no longer good news. And I, I, I think, I, I believe that Paul is speaking this to these Christians, and these Christians started to accept this other way of doing things because there's something inside of our hearts that has a tendency to go there. There's something, just like the song that we just sang, our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to go back into this performance mindset that we've got to earn it from God. And this is based off of what I've done and not what off of what Jesus has done. Now, this is sometimes what it can look like. Remember I said there's this version of Christianity, and we'll come together and we'll say, we follow Jesus, we sing these songs, we come to church, we pray, we give money to the poor, we do all this stuff. But there's this subtle twist, this subtle gravitational pull in our hearts that's always going to go back to Jesus plus. And here's how sometimes it might show up for us in church. How about this? How about churches that are really, really legalistic? It's Jesus Plus, dressing a certain way, you have to date a certain way. You don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do, or you certainly don't root for the Steelers. Like, that's what I grew up with. That was the world that I was a part of. There are lots of challenges with this, but partly, what, what do we do then with people who mess up? And it's just kind of like, well, you're out now. You're not a part of this anymore. How about, how about this? Another way that it's maybe not... So obvious for us is this, is that it's Jesus, it's faith plus an emotional high. So it's Jesus plus having deep, deep spiritual sorrow, hunger, thirst for God. It's not enough to have faith in Jesus. You have to go to the conference and go to Momentum and have this mountaintop experience where you're just emotionally overwhelmed. It's not enough simply to have faith. You have to layer on top of it an emotional experience. Or they'll say it's not just Jesus alone, it's Jesus alone plus encyclopedic knowledge of Hebrew and Greek. That's what gets you saved. How about this one? How about this one? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are loving and you're a good person. Liberal churches might look like this. It, it's this view that teaches that good people, regardless of their religion or lack of one, will find God. It teaches that if you're tolerant, if you're open, if you can just offset your impact in the environment enough that you'll be pleasing to God and you'll be good. Now, at the surface, this sounds very open-minded, but it's actually intolerant of grace because this is what it's teaching. It's teaching that you can be good enough to get to God based off of what you do. You can get eternal life. All it takes is virtue and look at my virtue. But here's what else it means. It means that bad people have no hope. I'm good because I'm tolerant, accepting. You're not good. You're bad. And only the good people get to be with God. But here's the thing that the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us that the good, the Pharisees, and the tax collectors, and the prostitutes, and the pagans, and the reprobates, they all get to have a seat at the in fact, we, I go back to this often, but when Jesus was on the cross and there was a thief right next to him condemned for his sin, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The good and the bad both have a seat at the table of the kingdom of God. So ultimately, it's exclusionary. But there's also another, another aspect of this too that can often happen, and it's this. It's Jesus 
plus some sort of religious observation. So like Jesus plus communion, Jesus plus confirmation, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus, Jesus plus all of these things. That's why we spend so much time and energy explaining what's going to happen here next week when someone gets baptized. It's not like it's magical water. It's not Jesus like they have faith and then when they get baptized, they come out of the water and papa, they're good with God. That's it. You know, that's not what's happening. All of those variations, and you can probably think of some more, they're religion. They're following rules in order to be right with God. And Paul is speaking to these Christians whose hearts have been pulled back into this method, this way of legalism, stepping back into Judaism. Now, what I want to do for the rest of the time, we kind of started on verse 6, but I want to go back and I want to look at verse 1. Most of the time when I read these letters, I like skip the opening. Because it just seems like superfluous niceties. But actually what Paul does is he sets down for us a foundation for what the gospel is for the rest of the book. And I want to look at this. I think this is really powerful and really important. This is how Paul starts in uh, Galatians 1, verse, verse 1. He identifies himself. Paul, an apostle. And by the way, an apostle is just someone who's sent. So he starts with his credentials. He says he's sent not from men, not from man. Then he identifies where it comes from. He's saying this isn't something that I've made up on my own. This isn't like, um, you know, us, us, our friends got together and this is what we say it should be. He says, I was sent not by man nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is my authority. And he said this, who raised him from the dead said this before, but this is so important. We don't believe in Christianity because of a book, a book that many of you are holding. You want to know why? Because Paul, when he wrote this, didn't have the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament. I believe that's God's inspired and errant word of God. But the early church, when they started, they didn't even have that. We don't believe in Christianity because it's convenient, because it's not. We don't believe in Christianity, uh, you know, even because Jesus said, believe in me. We don't. The one reason we believe in Christianity is because of the empty tomb. Because Jesus said, I'm going to conquer death. I'm going to raise myself from the dead. And then he actually did it. And he was seen by over 500 witnesses. That's why we believe that it's true. He starts out with, that's the foundation of it. He says, to the churches in Galatia, to Christians in this region, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, listen, 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 to rescue us, to rescue us from this present evil age. Jesus did not come to make nice moral people. Jesus did not come for, for information. He came for transformation. Other founders of religion came to teach, but not to rescue. But Jesus came to rescue us because that's what we actually need. If you see someone drowning, you don't throw them a manual on how to swim. You don't say, hey, real quick, let me just tell you how you swim. What do you do? You throw them a rope, and that's what Jesus is, and that's who he is. He's a rescuer. He's not just a teacher. Now, listen, this is unpopular in our culture who wants us to shoot out sunshine and rainbows all the time, we are completely unable to save ourselves. And this is part of what Paul was saying. Listen, Jesus came to be our rescuer for the last 
hundreds and thousands of years. We have been trying to get right by following these laws of Moses and what you can or cannot do. And, and no one ever could do it. And then there was like this earthly king, but they messed up too. It was all broken. We didn't need information. We needed transformation. We didn't just need teaching. We needed a rescuer. And that's who Jesus is. And that's why he came. He says he gave himself for us to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Now listen, listen. To whom, God, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. I, I glance over this as I read it, but it's really the foundation of everything Paul is getting ready to say. He says the bottom line of all of it is who gets the glory. Now the word glory comes from the Hebrew word kabod, K-A-B-O-D. If you've ever read Sleepy Hollow, you can think of Ichabod. I looked it up and I thought that was the connection. And it is. It means the glory of God. That's what Ichabod means. Ichabod Crane was his name. Ichabod, uh, kabod means the weight, the weightiness of something. It's got a presence in your life that's significant. It's a foundation because it's stable it's firm. It gets glory. It has weightiness for you. I, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. I, one of the projects I'm building is a woodworking bench. And the problem is when you're doing woodworking and you're chiseling, you're using a hand plane, and you put it in a flimsy vise, it doesn't have enough weight. And so when I go to put my 200 pounds on, into it, it will just give way. It doesn't have the weight that it needs. And so I've been working to build... A, a bench that can handle my weight. And it has to be heavier than me. <laughs> the weight and the glory of God means that he's a foundation that we can actually base our lives off of. The glory, the weightiness of something. The other morning I got up to take my daughter to school and before uh, I got up before the sun and so as I go out to drive out I open the garage door and this is what I saw. I saw the most beautiful sunrise, and it made me just stop dead in my tracks. I said, Katie, get out here. You need to see this sunrise. This is amazing. I don't care if we're going to be late for school. This is more important. And I took a picture, and I'm just, like, absorbing the weightiness of what I just saw. The glory, the weight. Listen, Paul is saying that the starting and the ending point of the gospel is the gloriness and the weightiness of who God is. Because in the Christian faith, God is the star of the story. God is the one who gets the glory. It's about what he has done and not what we have done. And this is the humbling truth that lies at the heart of Christianity. And why there are often so many imposters, because we love to get glory for ourselves. We just do. Our hearts love to manufacture glory for ourselves. We find I find the message of self-salvation very attractive, but the gospel comes and it flips that all upside down. It says this. This is not popular. It says you're in such a helpless state that you don't just need teaching. You need rescuing, and it has nothing to do with you at all. But I don't know how to swim. Listen, all you got to do is grab the rope. It says this, it says that God provided a rescuer for us. And, and so the question that I want you to think about this morning as we enter this study is when you think about you and God, 
in the deep rumblings of the soul, when you're lying awake in bed at night, when you're feeling insecure, when your relationships are starting to wear thin, when he doesn't love you anymore, when she's packing her bags, when your kids don't really care about you anymore, when the money isn't there, when you're in those deep rumblings of the soul, what is your confidence in? What gets the most amount of weightiness? What gets the glory in your life? Is it about what you've done or what God has done? And there's this version of Christianity, I know it because I've lived it, that says it's about what I have done and not about what God has done. And listen, you lose your religion and you find your faith when you switch your focus from your work for God to God's work for you. When you can see it the other way around, it changes absolutely everything. Some of you know my, my story and there are portions of my story that, quite frankly, I'm embarrassed about. And this is a big deal because for me in my life, my dad was a pastor. I went to a Christian school in high school. I, I went to a Christian college. I never partied. I never even danced. I never drank. I never slept around. I never did any of that stuff. And my life was squeaky, squeaky clean. If you looked at me from the outside, I would be like one of those one of those observant Jews who could say, look at my life and what I've accomplished. But on the inside, there was not, in the audience, my inside was full of like lust through pornography. And in my early 20s, God decided to bench me from a season of ministry to deal with this sin issue in my life. And all of a sudden, what I had built my goodness on, I'd never partied. I never drank, I never chewed, I never date girls that do, I never did any of that. All that stuff that was the outside of who I was, it, it just, it was completely gone. And I'm an embarrassment to my family, to myself, I embarrassed my wife at the time. And I'm feeling the weight of condemnation upon me. And the enemy saying, Scott, how dare you say that you're a Christ follower? How dare you try to lead people with what's true in your heart and in your life? God gave me victory in that season as I walked through a program called Setting Captives Free. And as I went through it, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to equip me with new life habits, patterns, counseling, all this. I don't know what it's going to be. But the very first lesson was this. The very first lesson was you will never find victory in this area of your life until you make it about God's glory and not your own. And I remember arguing with it. I was like, what are you talking about? No, you need to tell me about how you need to shape up and get it right and why you got to be that kind of person or whatever. And, and I was arguing with it, but as I went through this process, here's what I started to experience. I started to experience that I had built my life on the shell of what goodness is and what goodness looks like, and it was gone. And all of a sudden, I had to have something weightier that could bear the weight of my soul than a flimsy stand that can't even let, you know, it can't hold me. And all of a sudden, God had to say, you know what? You know what makes you worthwhile? Not your behavior. It's the fact that I am a loving God that redeems you with love and compassion and kindness, not based off of you and, and whatever, however you're made on the inside, however you function. It's not that. That's not what gets you my favor and access to me. It's only going to be through Christ alone. And when that started to be the thing that I cared about and gave me glory, it shifted. It changed everything for me. 
And it can shift and change everything for you as well. When you come to a place where you switch from what you do to what God does, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. When this happens, the most powerful dynamic happens in your spiritual life. It's so awesome because when you do this, you go from someone who's performing for God to someone who just worships them. And there's a story in the the gospel of Luke of a woman who was a woman of ill repute. She worked the streets. And she comes into Jesus' presence. She falls at his feet, and she just starts weeping, worshiping him, cleaning his feet with her hair. And the righteous people looked at her and sneered. And Jesus said, why are you doing that? She's worshiping me. She's loving me. You've not cared about me at all, but look at what she's doing. See, when she started caring about the glory of God, she became a worshiper. And, and everything flipped back around to the way it should be. The glory of God has got to be the foundation of the gospel in our lives because when we make it about us, we can say, look at what I've done. In church, we're just like, we just do this too much as Christians. We'll say, I'm better than them because look at how I vote or where they live. Or, and it's about our glory rather than simply coming in brokenness. Think about how different the world would be if Christ's followers would actually say, man, I'm the, I'm the one who needed rescue. Like, I, I am broken. I am lost. This is Jesus and Jesus alone. It would change everything to him. Everything flips up down, upside down when we offer ourselves to worship him. God, I'm not trying to earn your favor. I'm just here to respond to what you've already given me. God, you get the glory. You get to be the star of the show. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Cannon's going to come back up. We're going to respond and worship. I think that's an appropriate outflow of this. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Cannon's going to come back up. We're going to respond and worship. I think that's appropriate. And the truth is this, guys. Like I have talked with you as your lives are going through challenges. All of us are going to be in this place where we start to think my foundations feel like they're shifting. We're going to go through these times where it's like. I thought I was better than this. And it becomes about what we do rather than who God is. And we start to get the glory instead of him getting the glory. And so what I want to say to you that no matter where you're at, that you would simply respond with a confession before him and just say, God, I want this to be about your glory and not about mine. And the invitation to the gospel is always repentance. And so would you, would you be willing just to step into repenting of that? And I want to tell you that that's not a one-time thing. Like, Christian in the room, beloved, like, this is not like, I, I repent once five years ago. No, it is an ongoing repentance of, of worshiping self, of worshiping what I can do instead of saying, Jesus, this is 100% you. God, forgive me of ever making it Jesus plus. Forgive me of making it Jesus plus how I can perform, how I can give to a community, how I have worth and value in the, si in the eyes of my friends, how I feel like I'm worth it because I'm a good mom or a good dad. When you start to crumble and you can't bear the weight of your own soul and now you realize I'm not a good mom and I'm not a good dad and I lost it with them, what's going to be your foundation? And can you just say, 
God, today I'm choosing to repent. Today I'm choosing to say it's about your glory and not about mine. God, these are not lightweight, but they're deep things of the soul that we press into. But I, my heart needs to be reminded of over and over and over again. It's not the starting point of Christianity. It's all of it. God, speak it as true and actual in our hearts. God, we love you. We praise you. We pray this in the name of Christ.